When they were introduced in the 1990s, Amtrak's Talgo trains brought new standards of design to passenger travel in the Pacific Northwest. And then, a few years ago, the Talgos were sold for scrap and just hauled away. But not so fast. The Northwest Railway Museum in Snoqualmie has rescued the one remaining bistro car, and it arrived there yesterday. And that's where we find our resident historian, Felix Pennell. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. It's kind of cold aboard the bistro car this morning. It's not actually heated anymore. It's probably about 60 degrees in here, maybe even colder than that. Uh-huh. But you remember the Talgo trains, right, with those big fins or the wings on the roof? Well, then they, didn't they, they like slanted around the curves, right? Yeah, they had a, a passive system where the cars actually hung from a mechanism where they, when they went around a curve, the, the, it's, it sort of leaned into it, so it felt yeah. more comfortable for the passengers to go a little bit faster. Really revolutionized rail travel in the Northwest Corridor with the Amtrak Cascades back in, starting back in 1999. They lasted about 20 years, and then they kind of got rid of the whole thing. They scrapped all of them, but I'm up here in Snoqualmie. The Northwest Railway Museum, it's this wonderful place. I don't know, they have that, uh, the old depot there in Snoqualmie. They've got a big uh, restoration facility a few miles away, and they run trains in the summer and everything. They, uh, the executive director, Richard Anderson, is with me here this morning. He's the guy who decided, hey, we have to save some of this very recent railway history, and he joins us now. So, Richard, what made you decide to want to save a Talgo Bistro car? Well, there's probably nothing more, um, from a railroad perspective, nothing more distinctively northwest than a Talgo train. Uh, designer Cesar Vergara uh, put uh, many northwest touches on the on the train, and the bistro car was the signature car. Uh, there's a, a design in the ceiling showing the map of uh, Puget Sound and uh, southern British Columbia and northern Oregon, and the uh, food that was served in here was all distinctively northwest, and it, uh, it it's truly unique actually built here in Seattle, the interiors of the trains, uh, the trains themselves built in uh, in Spain. Uh, so many uh, aspects of this make it uh, truly unique to uh, the Seattle and uh, Pacific Northwest area. Now, I talked to Cesar Vergara yesterday. He's the designer who sort of put the uh, kind of special stamp on these and when he when he first saw these Spanish train cars coupled to an American locomotive, the height difference between the American locomotive and the Spanish cars really sort of set him a Twitter. Do we have this cut of Caesar? Yes. But I went to see it, and I was shocked at how awful the combination was of these massive, Great Dane-looking uh, locomotive with these little, it looked like chihuahuas. And I said, you know, it looks like chihuahuas following it. A great Dane. It's awful. No one can take this seriously. And they didn't like that. They took offense. I said, I'm not insulting you. I'm just saying this is an awful situation aesthetically. And they told me, your job is to come up with a paint scheme that disappears the height difference. And I, I answered right away. I said, I'm a designer, not a miracle maker. That is impossible. You know, but it turned out Cesar really was a miracle maker because he designed that big fin or that big fiberglass wing that made the locomotive and the baggage car look as if it was one big giant locomotive. And unfortunately, those wings, they weren't able to save those fiberglass wings, um, but they did save this incredible bistro car. Richard mentioned the, the ceiling has the design of the Northwest map with all the um, fiber optic lights. So when you're sitting uh -huh. in here at night, the little the clusters of population light up. And, you know, it's one thing Richard said yesterday um, when it arrived, it had, the car had a special smell. Richard, tell me what, a, what an old uh, dining car smells like. 
Well, it's hard. It's hard to describe exactly, but it uh, it is uh, common to many uh, trains that I've ridden on board. It's uh, probably a combination of uh, of the the lingering food and the uh, and the uh, cleaning agents that they've used, and uh, just the many people that have passed through. But it's uh, it, it's not unpleasant. <laughs> now, now people can't people can't see this yet uh, in person themselves. But what what are the immediate near future plans for what you guys will do with this car? Well, in the short term, this uh, we've got some conservation work to do. It, uh, after all, was literally pulled out of a scrap line where they were actively shredding the rest of the train. So we have some repairs to do and some stabilization to do. Uh, we hope to be able to debut it for its first visit with the public uh, early this summer, late this spring. And uh, ultimately, this is going to be incorporated into an expansion of our exhibit gallery here, where it will be used to uh, describe, uh, feature the, the renaissance of rail passenger travel in the Northwest. Uh, we also uh, intend to talk about the incredible design work of Cesar Vergara, which is, he's really uh, the Raymond Lowy of today. Uh, Raymond Lowy was a famous designer known for such things as the uh, uh, paint scheme on Air Force one and uh cesar didn't design just the bistro car and the interior of the cascade trains but uh, a number of locomotives for amtrak and and other trains around the world and now one thing that it's well, i want to make really clear this train wasn't just sitting in south seattle then brought here you know 10 20 miles this came all the way from the middle of the country and that was not inexpensive richard what, what did it take for you guys to get this thing here to snoqualmie well, just a little background is when the car, uh, when the train was withdrawn from service, it was sent for storage at a place called Beach Grove in Indiana, which is where Amtrak stores all of their trains that are out of service. When they uh, issued the tender to scrap it, it was uh, sent to a scrapyard in Indianapolis, where uh, where we made some last minute negotiations to get the car, and we had to truck it from uh, from Indianapolis all the way to the museum uh, at a cost approaching thirty thousand uh, dollars, staggering cost. Um, this is something we uh, uh, hope some kind souls will uh, help us uh, recover from. Uh, but uh, we um, uh, have uh, have set up a, a gateway to help uh, raise some funds for that on our uh, website at trainmuseum.org, uh, and that will defer the cost of shipping to the uh, to the museum. All right, Richard. Well, thanks for joining us here this morning. Thanks for letting me drive up early in the morning through the snow <laughs> to come up here to Snoqualmie to the Northwest Railway Museum where they have saved the last remaining bistro car from the classic 1990s Talgo train for the Amtrak Cascades. Dave, this is Felix Bunnell live in Snoqualmie bringing you history from out in the field. <laughs> Good for you. And how was your drive this morning, by the way? You know, it was pretty uneventful. There was a little bit of flurries coming down. Actually, the heaviest snow was right across Lake Washington. Yeah. Yeah, because yep. that's what I'm seeing right now. And by the way, I, I just just to m- make sure I didn't miss something, the train will not be back on the rails, so you won't be able to take rides in it. No, this will be a static display, but it is really cool. I mean, it, it's, it takes me right back to the many times I rode the Talgo between Seattle and Portland or Seattle and Vancouver, B.C. It's a very special car, distinctively northwest, and it's really cool that this museum exists and that they put the effort in to save it. All right, great. And thanks for the tell Richard, thanks for getting up early, too. We appreciate it. <laughs> All right, uh, yeah, thanks, Dave. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And for the latest developments in the January 6th incident, let's go to Washington, D.C. and CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. And the, the big news I heard yesterday was that uh, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, 
uh, seems to have invited Tucker Carlson uh, Fox to do his own investigation into January 6th by turning over all the video recorded at the Capitol. Now, is this new video or just the stuff that the January 6th committee already had access to? Well, it's 41,000 hours of video, according to multiple reports. I should start off by saying Speaker McCarthy has not confirmed this nor returned requests for comment about this. But the reports are that he's given all of this video, this enormous tranche, to Fox News and to Tucker Carlson. The January 6th committee did have access to some of this footage, but under a controlled setting in which they were <laughs> trying to release only that which would not endanger the security protocols of U.S. Capitol Police. There has been an ongoing concern that releasing some of this video would expose camera positions, camera quality, vulnerabilities that Capitol Police want to protect. Well, I, I know that uh, Tucker doesn't like the way the January 6th committee uh, operated, so presumably they would come up with an alternate story. Now, you're as close to this as anybody. Is there an alternate story to be told that would undermine the committee's conclusions? Oh, to be clear, there's an alternate story that's circulating among January 6th defendants, their families, their supporters, and some of their media enablers. I mean, there is a vigil every night, Dave, outside the Washington, D.C. jail where groups of January 6th defendants are being held. And during those rallies or vigils, they claimed that this was all entrapment by Nancy Pelosi that the video will reveal that there was nothing of the sort of what has been reported about January 6th. That is pure conspiracy theory, but they've championed the handover of video to Tucker Carlson with absolutely no idea of how it will be curated or released to the public. That, that there was, I don't, I don't get it, that there was nothing that went on? So <laughs> well, well, the videos we saw were deep fakes? Well, I don't, I don't, how, do, how do you support an allegation like that? Well, that's a great question because you're asking me to explain a conspiracy theory. But here's the thing. <laughs> they argue that there was more peaceful protest than, quote, the media has let on. I see. That more of the people that were there January 6th were doing things in political protest form, not in riotous, in rioter insurrectionist form. Uh, the Justice Department has released hundreds of hours of video for its part. As it prosecutes the nearly 1,000 defendants, it releases videos. It needs to make the case for the guilty pleas or for the convictions at trial. We've watched those videos. They show mobs attacking police with makeshift weapons, with pepper spray, with their bare hands. It is very much a riotous mob on January 6th. If they show other images, other videos that may not be relevant to the prosecutions, perhaps they show more, I don't know, arbitrary or uneventful moments, but that mm -hmm. doesn't preclude them from being a riotous mob in other moments, in other spots, in other parts of the Capitol. Would it somehow uncover something that we didn't know before? Certainly possible that video that has yet to be released publicly will show things we haven't seen yet. Uh, if they're trying to weave a counter-narrative, I'm not sure what the counter-narrative would be, but there's a process issue here too, Dave. The House Democrats are going to meet this afternoon to talk about the possible security vulnerabilities, the security impact of releasing raw U.S. Capitol Police video to a private media company. Uh. They have concerns that this is going to be dangerous. But also, though the Speaker of the House has not confirmed this, there is concern about him handing over 41,000 hours of surveillance video to a singular media organization. Um, there's certainly going to be some sour grapes from other media organizations, yeah. but also a, a larger question of, is that a good practice to release police surveillance video 
without a promise as to what they're going to do with yeah. The other thing that I noticed last night was uh, the appearance of the uh, the jury forewoman in the uh, Atlanta case against former President Trump and and others. Emily Kors stepped forward and it was I'd never seen anything quite like that before. She did not talk about their internal discussions, but strongly hinted that there were going to be a lot of indictments. And I, I'm curious what you thought about that. I th- Just like you. I think that's strange. It's unorthodox, and I haven't seen anything like that before. It sounds like she's trying to keep things inside the four corners of the rules set by the judge. She's not saying more than she's allowed to say, but I'm also not understanding the value of saying anything at this point. Um, What happens with this grand jury, what happens with any indictments is going to reveal itself. And to give out part of a story, to give out piecemeal information may not serve anybody. Uh, But I tell you something, this this Georgia investigation is moving quickly. It's becoming increasingly clear this might be the first set of information we get of all the multitude of investigations into the former president. Yeah. CBS News correspondent Scott McFarlane in Washington. Scott, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Seattle's morning news. Here's a bill to eliminate fix-it ticket stops, and also a bill in response to the Ohio derailment. Let's get caught up on what the legislature is doing with Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. Matt, good morning. Good morning, Dave. Yes, we've been talking about those fix-it ticket stops, but we're at a point in the legislature right now where people presented their bills, and now they're futzing with them and trying to, you know, make an improvement on them. And and this is another one of those controversial ones about what police can do and the reasons they can pull somebody over. The original bill basically said any of those fix-it tickets, like you got a taillight out or a broken mirror or a broken windshield, officers could pull you over and remind you and give you a fix-it ticket, mm-hmm. uh, but people, you know, there's a opposition to that saying it causes a safety hazard there's on the side of the road and people are getting killed on the highway. So if we eliminate these kind of stops, we could save people's lives. So there was a little compromise in this bill that's now moving forward. Basically, they're saying that officers may not stop and detain vehicles for non-moving violations as a primary offense, meaning when the like when the seatbelt law came out, that was a secondary offense. Mm-hmm. Like if an officer happened to see you apply you over for something else and give you a, a ticket for a, not wearing your seatbelt. Now it's a primary offense. If officer sees you without a seatbelt, he can pull you over and give you a, a ticket because it's a primary offense. So the, the change in this is that they can still give tickets for taillights out, except you have to have done something else first like speeding before they can hmm. do this. Now, Democratic Representative Chapala Street wants police to focus on serious crimes. Simply by reprioritizing our police's time, we can bring down the fatalities on our roads, but also freeing our police officers to investigate real crimes or more dangerous crimes like assaults. If we're talking about fatalities, though, isn't it danger if somebody's like driving without headlights or taillights? That would be bad, right? Yeah, c- correct. So I'm going to skip over the next argument, Dave, and then mm-hmm. uh, and say uh, Anoka O'Hara, who's an attorney with the ACO, says that the changes can still allow officers to give tickets for a taillight out, but it can't be the primary reason to pull somebody over. Under this bill, moving violations and equipment violations that relate to stolen vehicles or that cause immediate safety concerns continue to be primary stops. 
So what mm-hmm. kind of related what you just talked about, Dave, James, Mc, uh, James McMahon represents the Association of Sheriff and Police Chief and explains what an officer can do under this bill. If you drove around with no doors on your car, no fenders, no bumpers, an officer could watch you do that and not be able to pull you over unless you were also speeding. And that kind of mm-hmm. explains it, you know, that it, it, it could be uh, dangerous with a taillight or yeah. headlight out, but they, you have to do something else bad. And he, so he continued and basically he took a shot at lawmakers. We believe strongly that if the legislature thinks that I should be able to drive my vehicle with no exhaust, no headlights, no seatbelts, no bumpers, no doors, no taillights, no blinkers, no brake lights, then you should just enact a bill that repeals those requirements for my vehicle. I mean, I've, I've encountered cars that are still, still spewing out uh, horrible smelling exhaust. I have to press the filter button on my dashboard. And I don't see why that should be allowed. That, that, I think that directly affects people's health. Uh, that's that's true, and you know, you Prius owners would say something like that, right? You know. <laughs> All right, touche, touche, okay. touche. Let's talk about you know, the. Then, uh, go ahead. Let's talk about the train length. I yeah, I, th- I found this really interesting because uh, this was a hastily written bill uh, dropped last week because it's transportation related. They can submit these kind of bills right now. Um, and, you know, basically trains in our state are running 10,000 to 15,000 feet in length, and sometimes they're 20,000 feet. These are really long cars, you know, uh, maybe up to 150, 200 rail cars on the 20,000 foot trains. Um, and so basically, um, Sharon, Representative Sharon Tomiko Santos wrote a bill to limit the train length to 7,500 feet and uh, we're hearing in the testimony that's the ideal length for a train, a freight train in the state, because that's how the system is built for. And she basically explains why she's doing it. If what happened in Ohio can happen in Kent. Yeah, she represents Kent. So Johan Hillman of the BNSF countered with this. There's no direct correlation between safety and the average length of a train. And then it got really interesting uh, because everyone started to learn something about the length of trains. And here's John, uh, Johan Hellman again. Railroads are four times more efficient than moving freight by truck and 16 times safer. We can move one ton of freight 500 miles on a single gallon of diesel fuel. And in this green state, that's uh, that's an important fact yeah. right there. Um, but he said that there are about 50 to 60 freight trains running in the state at any given time right now. And he could not give an a straight answer on the length of some of these trains. But then he alluded to grain trains as being really long. Some of the longest trains we run are grain trains. And during harvest, the farmers who rely on this service are trying to get their commodity to market as quickly and efficiently as they can. If we have to cut each grain train in half, farmers will pay twice as much for slower, less efficient service and will inevitably miss market opportunities as a result. And apparently this is an argument that has been heard in other states who have thought about limiting train size. And that's an economic argument that's being used because of the efficiency of the rail service in this country. It's very efficient compared to trucks. And the longer the train, the more efficient it becomes. Uh, But the bill does not address the contents of what's on a train. And then you had... um, uh, there's Jared Cassidy, a train engineer. And the forces with long trains are astronomical, and they increase the difficulty for an engineer to control the train. And he actually was calling in, he said, from Palestine, Ohio, where this train accident happened that we all have been talking about. And he's actually working with the NTSB investigating the ask- accident. And he supports the bill. And he says a really big issue is 
is communication when these trains get so long. To work safely. And what's happening is, is the railroads don't provide radios that are adequate for the job to be done. And it's compounded immensely, increased the length of a train. We even have something now that's been coined as the Statue of Liberty pose, where a conductor climbs the ladder as high as he or she can on a rail car and wraps their arm in the rungs of the ladder in such a way that they can still work the microphone on their radio, but hold their radio as high as possible, just praying that they can be able to communicate with the engineer. Yikes, that's not much better than strings in a tin can. Yeah, you would think in this modern world we can't talk from a one end of the train to the other. Yeah, and he says that's super important. And what's been happening is that, like on that Palestine uh, accident, there were only three people on that train, and it was a long train uh, running that entire train. And that's because of this, the the train industry is saying it's the efficiencies they've got. Right. But people want to have, you know, maybe there should be l- more people on a train. And because the longer they are, you need more people just to be protective. You know, he talked about how um, if there was somebody at the end of that Palestine, Ohio train, they would have smelled the bre- bearings going bad and then yeah. would have called the engineer to stop the train. You think there'd be different rules for grain, which if it spills, you know, free food for the animals, as opposed to a bunch of toxic chemicals. And and that's what they said. It is a federal regulations that uh, in this industry where you can't put a, a I'm going to oversimplify it, you know, a very toxic car of uh, toxic uh, car carrying toxic chemicals next to like a a grain train a, a grain uh, car right there's a lot of rules like that they have to follow so they're saying it's already regulation but the there really isn't any regulation federal uh, we I learn uh, about the length of a train Matt Markovich Matt thank you you're welcome Time for your daily dose of kindness, sponsored by Heritage Homecraft. Another car helper, young woman at a car dealership, stepped up quickly to help a disabled veteran. His name, Michael Dorman of Virginia. He tells WWB-TV it's been a difficult journey for him, and he relies on his truck. I was struck by lightning September 11th, 1975, while on guard duty. It's caused a lot of disabilities. I have a lot of problems walking. I have a brain injury from it. And I have a lot of appointments at the VA, so this was it was extremely important to have my transportation. And as I alluded to, he ran into some issues. I went out to get in my truck, and I couldn't get in. I used the valet key, and the alarm went off. I didn't know what was wrong, so I called around to several places. Nobody could get me in. That is until he called one particular car company and talked to Geneva Bowles. He was telling me about... Um, how his truck just wasn't starting and how it was like his only vehicle and I felt bad for that and so I told him let me see what we could do because we were booking out like over a month in advance for just appointments. She could sense that he needed his truck fixed sooner rather than later and immediately took charge. She reached out to her boyfriend in the service department for some guidance and did some diagnostics over the phone and then I asked my manager I was like hey he's a disabled veteran is there anything we could do to get him in sooner He's said, absolutely, bring him in this Friday. So we got him scheduled for Friday. And Dorman wants to thank Bulls now for her kindness. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have had my truck. It wasn't until the end of the month. So thank you so much for your support and extra care that you took for getting me and getting my truck back. And even Bowles says it's had an impact on her. Like kind of in a bad mood that week, things weren't going as well. And just to meet him and know I made someone happy and that, you know, I did make an effect of someone's life just really made me feel better. 
easiest way to turn around your bad mood, help somebody. G. Scott, tomorrow at Lumen Field, Sea Dragons versus the Battlehawks. Is the uh, third iteration of the XFL going to make it, do you think? I think it will. I think that before uh, the pandemic uh, came in 2020, I actually think the XFL was starting to gain some momentum. Really, if you think when you when you look at it, these players, these are really players that we saw in college, and some of them maybe dipped their toe into the NFL for a second. The players on the XFL and or the USFL, these players are very talented. They're really good. This isn't just some just whatever type football. Some of these players, if given the opportunity, they can get to the next level. Sometimes there's some players that are in these situations, and it's all about timing. It's all about that one play. You're one play away from everybody seeing you or one play away from that one scout in the NFL seeing you and you getting your opportunity. That's really all life is. Life is just getting yeah. an opportunity. This is and not lucky, just college right? football then. Yeah. No, no, it's it's I call it, it's just football. And they're not going to make them play in their panties like they did women. <laughs> you remember that alternative team too? <laughs> Colleen, just what? wondering. If, I, you know, I mean, what am I? I, I can't say anything. If to we're going to have an alternative NFL team, I mean, why not spice it up a bit, make it equal? <laughs> is this the time where I admit now that I actually attended? A few of those uh, missed I'm games. I'm sure you did. Those, okay. They were buff. They were good athletes. Too bad they had to play in panties. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Dave. Okay. Hold I, on, can't I can't help you. I know. Just, but, but, I'm just wondering. I just want to say this about those missed games down at the uh, yeah. Showware Center. Those girls were really good, and I'm not just Women. saying that. No. Okay. <laughs> Okay, friend, here's here's okay. a here's a friendly wager. I just love to see you squirm. Okay. I'm sorry, I just had to point that out. Okay. Um we were having a discussion. Who mm. would win? A sea dragon or a kraken? Oh. Well it, I, the Kraken's not real. The sea dragon, there's actually some sea dragons, right? Yeah, there are sea they're like seahorses with yeah. fancy kelp looking things coming off of them. Uh, they're really small. I'm, I'm gonna, tiny, yeah. I'm gonna go <laughs> They have they have no known uh, like anything defense. anything that has dra- <laughs> anything that has dragon in it, yeah. I'm gonna go ahead with the dragon. Even sea though dragon. Kraken has multiple arms and Yeah, I'm gonna go yeah. with the sea dragon. Good. There could be like thousands of sea dragons who gang up on the Kraken. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go with that. Um but again, I'm looking forward to this to this season. I'm looking forward for an opportunity to have more football because right now, we I just said it yesterday. Um, the NBA doesn't have its act together and what they're doing. And at least right, this is opportunity for those that do like football or maybe have a little love for football. This is a good opportunity for you to get out there and support another local team here. Number one and number two, get a chance to see football year round. We yeah. get this, we got that, we got the, we got the NFL Combine coming up, we got the NFL Draft we coming had the up. Arena football team over in Spokane. That was a great. Watch is like half the size, the field and arena football. They're tough, fast, Good time, yeah, fast. I, you know, I, let me just say this: I think what ends up happening sometimes. I think when people go to watch football, and it's, it's interesting, right? They look at what the venue, like for example, they might say, "Oh, this is D one football, or this is Division two yeah. football, or this is junior college football, or this is uh, this is XFL." There are a lot of talent out there, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talent. If it's entertaining, right? Who cares? Right? Are you? 
You like football like that, Dave? Yeah, I like to be entertained. You said you went to an XFL game. I did. I have a Dragons t-shirt at home. <gasps> what? Yes, He's did. a fan. Yeah. Oh, one game. Well, I'm, you I'm, guys are going to go to a game together. I'm, I'm proud of you. Now, good luck on that missed conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, boxers are brief, man. At Come on. Nine o'clock. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. We've gotten past the idea of just defunding the police, but it's still important to hold rogue police officers accountable, and it's still hard to do that. That's why Joanna Schwartz wrote this book. It's called Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. She's a UCLA law professor. And uh, is it fair to say that it was the the George Floyd murder that uh, catalyzed this project for you? It certainly catalyzed me writing this book. It's The book is based on research that I have done for uh, about 15 years. Um, and then before that, questions that I was uh, inspired to ask based on my own experience as a civil rights attorney. But it is after George Floyd's murder, as I was fielding calls from legislators and journalists about how our civil justice system worked, that I decided it was important to write a book that that made all of these complicated issues uh, understandable to a, a non-legal audience. And people could see not only what each of these barriers are, but how they fit together. And a lot of what's discussed in your book is centers around qualified immunity. We hear that phrase all the time uh, in the news when we're talking about police use of force. So can you explain qualified immunity and how that has made officers so untouchable? Absolutely. And it is a phrase that's referred to often, but but it's not always easy to understand what it means. Mm -hmm. Qualified immunity is a defense that the Supreme Court created in 1967. And and when the first case regarding qualified immunity was uh, decided, the court described qualified immunity as a good faith defense. If an officer thought they were following the law, but they violated it, they were entitled to qualified immunity. But the court has repeatedly strengthened this defense, first saying officers' intent doesn't matter. They can act in bad faith so long as they don't violate what the court called clearly established law. And then in a series of decisions, the Supreme Court has defined clearly established law in a way that's virtually impossible to meet. Uh, A plaintiff has to find a prior court decision with nearly identical facts where the Supreme Court or a court of appeals held that the officer violated the Constitution. And so this is a doctrine that ends up excusing really egregious behavior, unconstitutional behavior, simply because the officer had the good fortune to violate the law in a way that had not precisely been uh, ruled unconstitutional before. But Colleen and I were discussing this. That's an impossibility. There was one case in particular you wrote about uh, where I think it was Fresno police officers stole $250,000 worth of cash and rare coins. And the court decided that, okay, yeah, the police officers should have known it was wrong to steal. But because there was no case, I believe, that uh, they would have known that this violates the Fourth Amendment, uh, they were granted qualified immunity. I mean, to me, that just... But by doing that, bonkers. you guarantee there won't be a precedent for the next time it happens, right. right? So there can never be a precedent. That's right. I mean, all that you say is is true, and the Supreme Court has actually made that even more difficult by telling lower courts that they can grant qualified immunity without ruling on whether the Constitution has been violated. So courts are telling, the Supreme Court is telling people whose rights have been violated that they have to find a prior case with nearly identical facts. And then they're telling courts they don't have to issue those decisions. 
Uh, and to add yeah. to the, the, the unsensibility of this, the doctrine is explained as necessary to put officers on notice of the unconstitutionality of their conduct. But officers aren't actually trained about the facts and the holdings of the kinds of cases that clearly establish the law. Instead, they're taught general principles, principles like you can't use force against a non-resisting suspect. And then they get accustomed to applying that standard in the innumerable ways in which they might uh, confront it. They're not taught the facts and holdings of these cases. They couldn't. They couldn't possibly learn them all or remember them all, or recall them all as they're doing their job. It's a fiction that officers need qualified immunity to put them on notice. Well, you know, we've gone from uh, defund the police now to, oh my God, we haven't got enough police. So for for police departments who are struggling to hire, I think they worry about this, that that if the um, if there is no qualified immunity, well, it's going to make it, make it even tougher to hire cops. So can you address yourself to somebody who's considering being a police officer, but is worried. Oh, if I if I become an officer in this present environment, somebody's going to sue my pants off over nothing. Absolutely. And, and there are uh, often claims uh, and concerns that without qualified immunity, officers will be bankrupted for split second yeah. mistakes that they make on the job. Well, officers are not bankrupted in these cases. In fact, officers virtually never contribute anything to settlements and judgments in these cases. And it has nothing to do with qualified immunity. It has to do instead with the fact that states and local governments across the country have what are called indemnification agreements uh, that provide that when an officer is sued, they are provided an an attorney and any settlement or judgment is paid from city funds or from insurance funds. When I looked at 81 jurisdictions across a six-year period, I found that officers contributed 0.02% of the dollars in these Mm -hmm. cases with 99.98% coming from central funds or insurance funds. There was only two jurisdictions where officers contributed anything. And what they contributed was on average $4,000. The idea that officers will be found liable for reasonable mistakes is also directly uh, goes against the way that the Supreme Court has interpreted the Constitution, which protects against unreasonable searches and seizures in the Fourth Amendment. But the court has interpreted that to mean that police can stop, search, arrest, assault, and even kill people who've done nothing wrong without violating their constitutional rights, so long as that the mistakes they make were reasonable. One final thing, when you ask officers whether they believe there should be these protections, many say no. And the reason is that good officers want there to be accountability for bad officers. Mm -hmm. Good officers don't want to work with bad officers and good officers don't want the view that we have in our current society that police are untouchable. I think that having a working system of accountability that finds meaningful consequences for officers who violate the badge and violate the law is uh, something that law enforcement, good law enforcement officers can and do want to have. Joanna Schwartz is the author of Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, teaches at UCLA Law. Professor Schwartz, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 849, and uh, okay, because your coffee options weren't complicated enough, here's another one. 
It's called an oleato, and it's... That's made up. It's called an oleato. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Colleen, we don't sn- sniff at that. And it's coffee with a shot of olive oil. And it's, <laughs> it's coming to... Can we sniff at you're, that? You're ruining the whole marketing. I'm effort. sorry. It's coming to Starbucks. So Mickey Gomez is here. Have you tried this? I have not tried this because it's only available in Italy and the UK right now. It launches today, as a matter of fact. And um, I was reading about this on CNN and uh, I thought, what's going on? Starbucks. Okay. And then I read it and I went, okay, this is this is something that's been around for years. What? Putting, yes, in Europe, putting olive oil in your coffee. It's, it's I was something... just there last summer and nobody was putting olive oil in their coffee. Well, they do at home. They do okay. in Sicily. It's a big deal. <laughs> it's Sicily. Um, you know, it's just something that they do. They put olive oil in, in a lot of their foods. But um, That's why they live so long. This is true. That's true. They sprinkle it true. on everything. Adding olive oil uh, to your to your coffee or to anything that you, that you eat. Doctors yeah. say that it's been associated with lowering uh, your rates of heart disease, colon cancer, uh, uh, reduces the risk of diabetes and osteoporosis, and that, that's what the doctors and scientists mm-hmm. say, not me. But um, the oleato is what they're going to call it. And w- what I found to be very interesting was that um, Brewer, who is the uh, chief um, marketing director for Starbucks, says that this is like this is one of the biggest launches they've had in decades, and they're super excited about it. And I'm just like. It's olive oil, guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, come to think of it, I have seen Italians and, and in restaurants, mm-hmm. they'll offer ice like ice cream with olive oil sure. sometimes drizzled yeah. over that. I think we're just used to kind of the the rancid tasting olive oil we get off the shelves at our grocery stores. I think right. it's much better in Italy, right? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you've got millions of different types of olive oil. I don't mean millions, but thousands, actually, of different types of olive oil, whether you have premium olive oil or inexpensive olive oil. The taste matters. Yeah. Um, so what they're going to do is, they, for now, I believe they've got three drinks. It's the oleato, uh, oleato latte with oak milk, oat milk and olive oil. Oleato ice shaken espresso, espresso with oat milk. Ooh. I can't speak this morning, you add hazelnut to the flavor and some olive oil, and it's a it's a spoonful of olive oil. Which, by the way, if you're trying to watch your figure, adds an extra 120 calories to your drink. Hmm. And then there's the Oleato Gold Foam Cold Brew, Whoa. which is made with Starbucks sweet milk foamed and two servings of olive oil. Hmm. I might try it just for fun. I- try it too. So when do we get to try it? So we're not going to be able to try it here in the States until the summer uh, and only in California in the beginning. That's only, where in gonna, Calif- only, <laughs> only in California. That's where we'll be able to find it this summer and then hopefully the popularity will catch on and then we'll have it here in Seattle as well. Yeah, Washington. hopefully. I'm gonna. I'm just I champing at the it. bit. I mean, um, yeah, do it at home. I suppose you could just, you know, drizzle a spoonful of olive oil in your iced coffee, right? I don't know. I have I'll bring some olive oil tomorrow. So we call it aceite. Which is olive oil, but uh-huh. it's it's aceite in Spanish, okay. and mm-hmm. so we use olive oil in our family for medicinal purposes as well. Oh. But I, I I I'm thinking my grandmother might be rolling over in her grave if I put olive oil in my coffee. I don't know. It's interesting but- that this is being announced too at the same time CNN mm-hmm. did this like big puff piece. Sort of, I guess. She challenged him a little bit on the union stuff, mm-hmm. Poppy Harlow at CNN. And uh, he was pretty forthcoming. You know, he's on his way out again as CEO for the third time. He just came in because he felt the company lost its way. And he said... And he, didn't he blame the young people? Like, the young people are are what's ruining Starbucks for us right now because they want to unionize. And I didn't, that was I didn't hear him say young that. people, but he did say, he was saying, like, listen, our values have always been to support our employees and treat them well. We don't need a union to do that. Like, that's his argument. 
argument, whether you want to believe it. Or not. He's accused of union busting and being brought in for that purpose. I hear you. But anyway, this is why they're heading olive oil to the coffee. I I think it's a good diversion. I mean, they're they're making it out to be bigger than what I think it really is. I mean, you know, it's just it's just a safe. Well, Colleen was immediately disgusted, so it must be a big deal. Well, I mean, it's like putting (laughs) butter in your coffee. Who does that? Some people do that. They put the ghee, the clarified butter. They say it makes them fuller. There's fat in milk, so I mean, it's just it's another form of fat. Are you going to try it, Dave? Absolutely. You don't drink really Uh, coffee, though. uh, Well, that's true. Well, I always get it decaffeinated. Olive oil in your tea. I will occasionally go in and just order, you know, the weirdest thing on the menu to see if it's different, and frankly. I can't always tell them apart. Yeah. You know, the the burnt mush, marshmallow versus the white chocolate mocha. Yeah. Sometimes it just all tastes it's too much. Fun. Just give me a little coffee. Too give me sweet. give me some cream. <laughs> Two Splendas. I'm good. Yeah. Thank you, Mickey. No oleato. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.